Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. This is the weekly podcast and uh, we've got, as ever, a lot to go through this week. But as we're in August, it's going to be slightly different. I think we should take a break from uh, the daily twists and turns, although not wholly in my reflections, uh, and not at all with your brilliant questions, which we'll be coming to uh, shortly. But first of all, if it's okay with all of you, uh, as I said last week, I'm going to do three podcasts over August, where I'm going to be reflecting on the theme of the Prime Ministers We Never Had, uh, pegged to my new book on that theme coming out uh, in on the first Thursday in September with about uh, 100,000 other books. It's a huge publishing day. But August is slightly quieter and gives us time uh, to reflect. And today I thought I would reflect by posing this question, highly topical actually, uh, which is, is Rishi Sunak our next Prime Minister? Uh, You've asked this in questions every now and again uh, in the months that have passed. Uh, But I'm going to reflect on it in terms of uh, Prime Ministers we never had, um, because it's it's quite interesting, the number of chancellors who actually don't make it. But before I do, this is the kind of themes of the three uh, kind of reflections I will be doing in three different podcasts. I'll be doing that in a moment, looking at Sunak uh, based on the past. Uh, then in another podcast, I'll be looking at the criteria I've applied for making an assessment of prime ministers uh, we never had, because it could get silly, and quite often does get silly. You know, uh, radio programs say, OK, who's the best prime minister we never had? And you know, it could be anyone. And if I'd written that book, it would have gone on like War and Peace, and it would be deeply subjective. It would be my kind of favourite people who never made it. So that wouldn't work, uh, and there has to be strict criteria. And I'll be kind of talking about that because it's interesting to look at um, how it is that some people were perceived as or had the chance of being Prime Minister, but never, never got the crown, never seized the crown in that kind of Shakespearean leap. And then on the third one, I'll be reflecting on the uh, Prime Ministers we never had in the book. There are 11 in 10 chapters. So one chapter includes two Prime Ministers we never had. Who are they? Um, Anyway, you can uh, pre-order this book now so you get it right away on the day on all the usual kind of websites. So let's begin with uh, my reflections on Chancellors and Sunak's position. And in order to do so, I'm going to sort of begin with a different reflection, which is to look at what are the qualifications for being Prime Minister. What is required of an individual to qualify for that titanic task? Uh, There's a debate about what's more difficult, Prime Minister or being leader of the opposition, especially if you're a Labour leader of the opposition, but that's another issue. And in my uh, book on uh, Prime Ministers, uh, Reflections on Leadership from Wilson to Johnson, At the end of the introduction, I kind of listed, you know, like in those job adverts where there are criteria for people uh, to apply. You know, I always remember with the BBC, uh, one of the essential qualifications was a driving licence. 
And between you and me, when I applied for my first job at the BBC, this was in local radio, we had to drive around. I didn't have a driving license. I didn't meet a key qualification. And I had this nerve-wracking test just before I started the job, which I did get, having claimed I did have a driving license. I passed the test. Uh, one of the most exciting moments of my life. I don't know what I'd have done if I'd failed. But anyway, you know what I mean, essential qualifications. So this is what, because we don't really discuss leadership, well, we do, we talk about leaders all the time and potential leaders, hence the fascination with prime ministers we never had. But we don't do much analysis of the qualifications required of the job. And I anyway, I listed them on the basis of my study of everyone in modern times, from Harold Wilson to Boris Johnson. These are the ones I listed at the end of the introduction. He or she, and by the way, this might not seem, what's the, what you might be thinking, what's this got to do with Rishi Sunak? Has he gone completely bonkers in August? It, it, it will flow. This will all lead to whether... Sunak should be seen as the next Prime Minister. So these are the kind of qualifications uh, I think are required. He or she must be a political teacher with a skill for explanation and making sense of complex issues. This is an essential qualification. Well, for regular listeners, there's no need for me to expand on that. You know exactly what I mean. Um, I'm obsessed with this idea it should be basic but isn't, that a successful leader must constantly explain what he or she is doing. He or she must address the why question, not just assert things and announce policies, but why, what are the underlining principles, and then constantly make them accessible as if you are a teacher, you're a political teacher. Uh, next, he or she must be able to manage a party that's bound to be divided and must also lead that party with a sense of purpose and ideological verve. Now, this is as tough as the first one of being a political teacher, although actually that shouldn't be tough. Anyone who wants to be a leader should be a natural teacher. This one is tough because both the two bigger parties are split in all kinds of different ways, um, and yet a successful leader must at least create the impression of a degree of unity and then bind everyone together with a kind of sense of ideological verve. Otherwise, politics becomes technocratic. I've never liked that Tony Blair phrase, what works is what matters, because what works should be the subject of heated ideological debate. So a leader must pull off the trick of uniting a party with different views. Inevitably, with First Past the Post, you get two big parties, what Harold Wilson used to call a broad church, which is a euphemism in the Labour Party for everybody hating each other. Um, but then there must be a kind of ideological sense of direction that nonetheless unites people who disagree ideologically. It sounds impossible, but it's not. The best leaders pull this off. Uh, he or she must respond astutely to the demands of the media at any time of any day. Those demands, as we've discussed often on here uh, in the podcast, have intensified with social media. He or she must link values to policies in ways that bind a party and appeal to the wider electorate. This is essential. You can't just pluck policies out of a vacuum and say, well, this is this is what we're offering at the next election. 
They have to be linked to the values of the party, but, and this is as important, uh, indeed unavoidable if you want to win an election, you then have to make an appeal to the wider electorate uh, who don't necessarily uh, share the values of the party or else they might have joined that party or voted for it on a regular basis. So that is a sequence uh, which is very challenging for a leader and um, yet essential. He or she must show a deep understanding of the wider currents of domestic and foreign policy and a developed sense of political history. Without a sense of that past and a sense of what um, Jim Callaghan once described as sea changes in British politics, uh, a leader will be lost, unable to fully make sense of what is happening. Events don't just kind of erupt. A.J.P. Taylor once said mischievously, history is one damn thing after another. I don't think he meant it um, because it's it's much more complex than that and there are always deeper forces at work and a leader has to have a sense of them. Uh, he or she must read the political rhythms in order to assess correctly the space available to act as prime minister. At any given time, a prime minister could have tiny amounts of political space and they must use that space as productively as they possibly can. At other times, they will have quite a lot of space to be daring and radical, and they need to make the most of those opportunities, but they can't unless they can read the political stage very, very precisely, um, and then they can work out how much room they've got. Uh, those are all essential. Then I put highly desirable experience of government before seeking to lead one. And then I add, voters are expected to take into account the constraints on a prime minister when making an appointment, but probably won't do so. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. The voters are the toughest employers uh, in the world uh, because their default position, except bizarrely with Boris Johnson, is disillusionment, although that might come with him, almost definitely will. Uh, and therefore... Uh, boy, do you have to work out a way of retaining a kind of relationship with the electorate so that default position of mistrust, uh, disillusionment, does not develop speedily and permanently, in which case you, the Prime Minister or potential Prime Minister, is doomed. Now, the interesting thing about that range of qualifications, and they are really demanding, is that none of those who became Prime Minister uh, met them all. Uh, for example, to take the great election winners of recent times, uh, Wilson, Thatcher and Blair, um, they were all in their very different ways political teachers. Thatcher was very good in her early days of reading the political stage and how much room she had to make her moves. She was fairly cautious at first. She, in her shadow cabinets up until the 79 election, had around her people, with the exception of her chancellor, Geoffrey Howe, were coming on to chancellor, as you see, or shadow chancellor in the build-up to 79, uh, were on the whole in a wholly different ideological place to her. But she didn't feel strong enough at first to remove them. Ian Gilmore, James Pryor... Uh, people like that 
um, were way to the left of her on economic policy and in, on other matters. Uh, but she kept them in senior positions because she didn't feel she was strong enough to make a move and take them on. Uh, she didn't, in inverted commas, take on her party in opposition because she sensed that would be counterproductive. Uh, she wasn't in a strong enough position to do so. Uh, I've argued that Keir Starmer would be making a big mistake if he chooses as his defining theme in the coming months taking on his party, although he will get a lot of advice in the media to do that and make that his defining theme. Thatcher didn't even though she was in a different position to a significant section of her party. But then, uh, in 81, when the SDP was formed, so there was a kind of formal schism within the Labour Party, she said she had a lot more space. And that's when she dumped the likes of uh, Ian Gilmore, moved James Pryor to Northern Ireland, uh, brought in Norman Tebbit. She was a very sharp reader of the space available. Uh, Wilson was too, and he knew that most of the time, actually not wholly, in 1966 he won a landslide election, didn't really make the most of that. But that was largely to do with the fact that they suffered the confidence-sapping trauma of devaluation, having to uh, devalue the pound in 1967. And so he never really recovered again, actually. But um, in that more constrained space he then had, and certainly in the after the 74 elections, uh, Wilson knew that he had to act with wily, exhausting guile to keep the whole show on the road because he had so much limited room to breathe, frankly, politically. Um, others, I mean, it's quite interesting that some of those who weren't election winners and were quite short-serving prime ministers did have a sense of history, which I argue is an essential qualification. Uh, Gordon Brown and Edward Heath were, had a kind of deep sense of the past and context and were immersed in kind of policy detail. Um, but they weren't the election winners. Perhaps winning an election requires different skills sometimes than to being a prime minister implementing policies of great complexity, such as Heath getting Britain into the common market as it then was, and Gordon Brown responding to the 2008 crash. Anyway, the key thing is that none of them, none of those modern prime ministers, had all the qualifications to be a prime minister. You would have to be superhuman, frankly, to have all those qualifications. And yet I argue they are all essential, uh, which is why, of course, prime ministers are miserable most of the time because they aren't superhuman and uh, find that they're up against a wave of challenges which they aren't wholly equipped to meet. So why did that lot get the crown when others don't? What were the factors that uh, ensured that they seized the crown at uh, the key moment? And I think, I mean, there are many, but one of the most fundamental is this. When the vacancy arose, and by the way, uh, this is quite significant, vacancies do not arise very often for the top of a party, let alone the top of a government. Uh, for all the speculation 
in British politics about whether X is going to succeed Y as prime minister or leader of their party, or both, of course, vacancies hardly ever come up. Uh, bear that in mind as we reflect over the coming weeks about prime ministers we never had. But one of the common factors that explain how all that group, from Harold Wilson to Boris Johnson, acquired the crown is this. At the moment when the vacancy arose and they seized their opportunity, they were close to being at one with the mood of their party at the time. So just to go through them briefly, because I think this is important and underestimated when the media and indeed party colleagues reflect on who will be the next prime minister, always pose the question, because we're a party-based system, not a presidential one, are they at one with the broad mood of their party? So when Wilson uh, got the leadership, uh, leader of the opposition, when Gateskill died suddenly, uh, 1963, Labour had been through this torrid period of intense uh, division, really through the 50s, after being booted out of power uh, in 1951. And Wilson was perfectly placed. Uh, the Labour Party knew an election would be coming up pretty soon, and they needed someone who could unify the party, but who was seen as being broadly on the left. And Wilson, who had resigned with Aniram Bevan uh, over the introduction of prescription charges in that last Labour government of the early 50s, uh, was perfectly placed. Uh, he had support on the left, that so-called Bevanite wing, but was seen by the so-called right of the party as someone who wasn't remotely ideologically uh, on the left. And he therefore became the sort of binding force candidate at a point where Labour ached to win an election. Uh, and he did so. Heath is very interesting because when I started writing about Heath, uh, I did wonder, how the hell did he become leader? Someone so publicly awkward um, at a point where television was beginning to be the dominant media, media medium in terms of covering politics. Um, and yet, when I looked at the leadership contest he fought, with uh, Reginald Maudling being the main contender, many things stuck up. But above all, he was then closest to being... Uh, the mood of the Conservative Party at that time. They were up against the then modernising Harold Wilson. They didn't want someone who appeared at all louche or from an aristocratic background or kind of posh or anything. And, and Heath came from a relatively poor background for a Tory potential leader. He had been a very effective cabinet minister, so he had proven himself in government. Um, and he wanted it desperately, and the party sensed that he did. So again, in the dance at the time, it was Tory MPs alone who voted at that point, of course, um, Heath was closest to the mood of the party at that particular moment. And Margaret Thatcher replaced him in February 1975. And again, 
At that point, Heath having lost two elections, the mood of the Tory parliamentary party was someone who was not Heath-like. There was a sense that they needed to move on from what many in the parliamentary party viewed as the failed policies of Heath. Uh, you know, he had been in power for three and a half years, bashed out unexpectedly in the February election, albeit only by a what tiny margin of five seats by Wilson's Labour. Then he lost again in October, and when you think about it, what chutzpah that he wanted to still stay on. He had then lost three general elections. Um, but he did, but she, Thatcher, represented a change. Uh, someone who was going to challenge, albeit at that point in a very imprecise way. She'd been a very loyal cabinet minister under Heath, but she kind of danced with that sense, we've got to move on from Heathism, and And she was that person. Uh, and so it was not wholly unsurprising that she became leader. Same with Callaghan for Labour. When Wilson stood down uh, as Labour Prime Minister in 76, it was in the midst of torrid economic circumstances and they wanted solidity. They wanted someone who could keep the whole show on the road. It was a deeply divided Labour cabinet of heavyweights with uh, much charisma. Crossland, Ben, Jenkins... Uh, wherever you look, Shirley Williams, Barbara Castle, although Callaghan famously sacked Barbara Castle when he became Prime Minister. He was the one that reflected the mood of the Parliamentary Party at the time. Um, and it was only later that Labour went on to choose leaders as the party moved to the left, to the left, with Michael Foote in uh, 1980. By 19... Uh, 90, uh, the Tories wanted a different kind of Prime Minister to Margaret Thatcher, and they chose someone in personality and indeed in politics, although they didn't quite realise that at the time, was very different to Margaret Thatcher, that was John Major. As Neil Kinnock reflected later, voters felt there had been a change of government with Major. He was a more emollient uh, character, and, and as it turned out, to some extent, to the left of her in economic policy making. So again, there was a dance with the mood of the party at the time. Again, just the parliamentary party. And so it goes on. Blair in 1994, Labour 8 to win, having lost three elections by... No, what am I talking about? Three, four, 79, 83, 87 and 92. Four elections uh, in a row. They 8 to win. And he was a winner. Uh, and was perceived as a winner. And you could feel it during the leadership campaign in 94. And so even though, as it turned out towards the end, there were big differences between party and Blair, which is why in reaction to it, ultimately, uh, the party moved towards Corbyn. Uh, at that point, they wanted Blair by a huge margin. So that is the common theme of prime ministers who get it. They don't have all the qualifications required because, as I say, you would have to come from some divine force to acquire all the qualifications. But they were at one with their party at the junction of a leadership contest, or close to being so. And that brings me to chancellors, because what is quite striking 
is that although a lot of chancellors are seen as a likely next prime minister, quite a few of them don't make it. Um, in recent times, only Gordon Brown has moved from the Treasury into number 10. And look at the willful energy it required for Brown to get there. Um, from 1994, when he was Shadow Chancellor, onwards until he became Prime Minister in 2007, every day there was a focus as to how, in the end, he would acquire the crown. And it is, in my view, an epic achievement that he pulled it off, because being a long-serving Labour Chancellor isn't easy. Ask Dennis Healy, who did it for just over five years. Um, and yet he managed to acquire it. But it's quite unusual. Uh, John Major was fleetingly Chancellor, but before he was really fully uh, tested in that role. John Major was sort of Foreign Secretary and Chancellor for, for about 10 minutes each. And therefore, you haven't really defined yourself in that role. But quite often, uh, you find yourself as Chancellor having to do things which are unpopular or are seen to be uh, to have failed. So Callaghan did become Prime Minister, but he didn't move into number 10 from number 11. Far from it. Uh, he became Prime Minister when he was Foreign Secretary. Uh, he had been Foreign Secretary from February 74 after that election. Became Prime Minister in 1976. But of course, famously as Chancellor, I've mentioned it already, he was in charge when that Labour government in the 60s was forced to devalue. And he got, in effect, a demotion to the Home Office uh, when he was uh, Home Secretary for the rest of that Labour government. Uh, and Roy Jenkins became uh, Chancellor, was perceived to have been a very successful Chancellor. But note, did not become Prime Minister. And so it quite often is. I mean, Nigel Lawson, I don't think, really wanted to be Prime Minister. Uh, Geoffrey Howe actually did for a bit. I mean, he used to get quite worked up, uh, although he had a kind of gentle temperament, extremely nice person, in spite of a sort of raging ideological commitment to monetarism in the early 80s. Um, he used to get quite worked up that Thatcher was getting all the credit for what was seen widely as uh, an economic success story, highly contentiously, by the way, but that's, that's a different issue. Um, but he never got near the top, and of course Thatcher famously uh, treated him badly in reshuffles to the point where he was ready to strike when he resigned from the cabinet. Um, and so it is that if you are a chancellor, you are the one that had to take so many of the unpopular decisions. And in doing so, it can quite often place you at odds with your party. Dennis Healy is another widely seen as a likely Prime Minister who incidentally meets a hell of a lot of the qualifications that I read out at the beginning of the podcast. But the decisions he was forced to take as Chancellor in the 70s put him at odds with his party. And looking at Sunak, you can see how the ingredients are in place. I make no predictions because 
uh, the glory of politics is its unpredictability. But with good cause, he's seen as a likely next prime minister, uh, partly because Tories win elections in England, um, and therefore he's placed in the governing party. Um, if the Tories win again, that will be five on the trot, uh, close to a one-party state. Um, and he it doesn't have heavyweight competitors around him. One of the reasons why some prime ministers we never had never became prime minister is the scale of the competition. Uh, there were eras when we were blessed, frankly, with heavyweights all over the place in politics, in opposition and in government. That is most emphatically not the case at the moment. So Sunak stands out. Um, he's obviously also someone who enjoys the job, in command of detail, uh, and so on. But he is, this autumn, inevitably going to have to take unpopular decisions uh, about spending, tax, and all kinds of related issues. Uh, and indeed, his self-described fiscal conservatism will propel him, if he prevails in the internal discussions, to take probably more unpopular decisions than are necessary. We Keynesians will look out for this because we've lived through it so many times. George Osborne could have borrowed more and uh, injected growth into the economy, which would have helped him raise funds to have probably addressed the so-called deficit question more speedily. Um, and let's see now which way uh, Sunak goes, but he's much closer to the economics of George Osborne uh, than he is to sort of Rooseveltian, call me a Rooseveltian figure, uh, Johnson, although Johnson too believes in tax cuts and so on, and Johnson's frankly all over the place, um, but that is gives him space to be Rooseveltian as well as Thatcherite, whereas Sunak is more on the Thatcherite wing. Where will that leave him with his party? That is the key question. Uh, if it leaves him at odds with his party, and by the way, I don't necessarily think it will, it might, might not. I mean, much of the Tory party, including a lot of the MPs elected in the so-called Red Wall, are Thatcherites. Um, it's, it's a myth that Thatcherism has been purged uh, from within the parliamentary party and beyond with that membership. Uh, what has happened is that the language has changed and the pandemic has certainly uh, forced uh, a degree of statism uh, that is uh, unprecedented for recent Tory governments. And Brexit has given them seats in Labour areas which are much more yearning for economic interventionism on a big scale or need it. So it's a fascinating kind of junction uh, where those brought up on Thatcherism face for different reasons demands for Keynesianism, frankly, or as Johnson has put it, Roosevelt-style public spending. Um, now, who knows what's going to happen, so I'm not making predictions, but you can see a sequence where Sunak becomes at odds with his party, because even if 
the parliamentary party theoretically back fiscal conservatism. In practice, they will not want to see big cuts in their areas. And even I noticed Steve Baker, uh, an MP for a Buckinghamshire constituency, you know, one of life's great rebels, Brexit, COVID and all the rest of it, um, warning about uh, cuts uh, in universal credit and other things for some in his constituency. Um, yet he would be probably seen as a fiscal conservative. So even those who theoretically share Sunak's instincts will not always dance with joy at the policies that arise from it. And if, when there's a vacancy, he finds himself at odds with his party, he won't win uh, the leadership. He won't acquire the crown, as other chancellors have discovered. Not all of them, but quite a few. Uh, say it's quite unusual for long-serving chancellors who've defined themselves by being in the Treasury and what they've done to move directly into number 10. And when Gordon Brown did it, blimey, God did it take effort and energy and willpower and ruthlessness and kind of a certain brutality. Anyway, there were kind of hints there at a couple of the Prime Ministers we never had chancellors who were seen as likely prime ministers who definitely wanted to be prime minister and never made it that'll be for another time and as I say you can get hold of the book pre-order pre-order and then you'll get it uh, when it comes out uh, early next month thank you for listening to that the next one of my reflections will be what are the criteria for prime ministers we never had um, and will Sunak be in that one who knows? I'm not going to talk about Sunak again, by the way. Uh, well, I doubt it. Depends what's happening during the next talk. Um, anyway, I'll be interested in your reflections on all of that. And in the meantime, I'm going to turn to your questions that have been pouring so many. Sorry if I don't get the chance now to read through them all, but let's have a look at uh, some of them. The Corbyn debate rumbles on. Uh, Ruben Chaplin writes that, um, you know, just for new listeners, there's been a sort of debate amongst us all here on the podcast about the whole anti-Semitism thing. I've said a few times, I, I don't think Corbyn personally is anti-Semitic. Um, some have written in to say they think he is. And we're going around in circles, I think. But uh, uh, Ruben uh, mentions um, that um, he makes an interesting comparison, actually. Uh, that um, you know, he he sees Corbyn as uh, you know to summarise a bit like uh, Angela Rayner has said that he's sort of kind of blind to the issue or whatever, rather than being anti-Semitic. And uh, Ruben says it reminds me a little bit of Boris Johnson, who many call a racist. I just don't think this is true either. I think it's lazy commentary. Johnson is clearly insensitive in terms of the language he uses in regards to issues of race, has said racist things in his columns, and is uh, very clearly a magnet for racism through his flag-waving anti-immigration Brexit championing campaign, which has propelled him to power. However, I don't think he actually holds deeply racist beliefs. Um, first and foremost, he's socially liberal, as is Corbyn, etc., yeah, uh, I, I agree with you about Johnson. I think he is frivolous about language uh, and having a laugh and has written some uh, kind of ugly, provocative columns in that sense. But in the short time I've spent with him and for the longer time I've observed him, 
I don't think for a second uh, he is racist as such, but there is a frivolity in his approach. Um, and on the same subject, and, and, and you know, with, with Corbyn, there is an insensitivity to the issue, uh, but I personally don't think he is. And Sean Farrell agrees, and he says... Um, he quotes uh, a defence of Corbyn by Michael Rosen, uh, the author in The Spectator, who said, I've known Jeremy Corbyn for 30 years. He's no anti-Semite. He's put his neck on the line hundreds of times in opposing racism, anti-Semitism, far-right fascism, Holocaust denial. Um, yeah, I, uh, that, that, that certainly is my impression. Um, he didn't deal with the issue as leader, but that's more in my view because he lacked leaderly skills um which is a different issue uh, it's an it's a fundamental issue but uh, but it's a different one anyway i think to some extent we're going around in circles now on another issue this the most someone uh, wrote with a good idea for a theme in this section of the podcast which is politicians in the wrong party and there's no doubt who the winner is i've had loads of emails naming one person and she came up I think last week or the week before as well so here are a couple of examples of that um from uh Paul uh uh sorry Paul Arbuthnot let me say that again Paul Arbuthnot who is a rector in the Diocese of Cork in uh Ireland not just Cork actually um and is a regular communicator and listener and Paul um uh, wrote uh yeah and then because he, 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 he wrote suggesting Kate Hoey uh, uh, and then noted that by the end of the podcast uh, someone had already nominated her uh, and anyway Paul says I'm loving the podcast and t tuning in from County Court thank you so much I'm listening to this one whilst on the exercise bike in the gym uh, excellent uh, I hope I hope you lost calories galore in listening and exercising. I can confirm that exercise is overrated and the people sending in recipes have life sorted. Yeah, maybe there's a third way. Recipes and exercise. Uh, that, let's, let's think of that Blairite third way option. Anyway, Paul says, to continue our theme of politicians in the wrong party, I nominate Kate Hoey, a former pupil of the grammar school I went to, but separated by a few good years. Okay. Kate would surely be the very model of a conservative Red Wall MP. Firmly Brexit, English votes for English laws, pro-grammar school, pro-marriage tax allowance and anti-BBC. Surely she'd be loved and be a firm blue brick in the Red Wall. Yeah, I think she kind of qualifies. She's certainly topping the bill and Paul Grant um, makes the same point. Uh, surely Kate Hoey must be a good example. I notice she now sits as a non-affiliated member of the Lords, so maybe she has now finally left the Labour Party. But for so long as a Labour MP, she spoke for more like a member of UKIP. So Kate Hoey tops the league of MPs who were in the wrong party. She's obviously not an MP any longer. Uh, thank you for that. Any more nominations? Just a bit of fun. Uh, do keep them uh, coming. Uh, Brad Dodd writes from Oxford. He follows this theme, one of my favourite words, as you will all know, to explain politics is consequences. Do people leaders follow through the consequences of policy. I should have put that down as a qualification for leadership, actually. 
Uh, the UK is replete with examples of bad consequences. Uh, don't we know it? Uh, 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 he says Johnson has made many. One example was his reluctance to order the country into lockdown early last year. Uh, most probably he thought it would do him harm with the voters. It's interesting because the voters wanted the lockdown. It's quite interesting, but the consequences are huge. Um, and he then says a second example is uh, the result of releasing people with COVID-19 to old people's homes. That will be a big theme of the inquiry. Yes, everywhere. Consequences. Um so thank you for that brad yeah follow the consequences because leaders often don't margaret thatcher was poor on consequences you know she was thrilled with the sale of council homes but then didn't reflect on one of the consequences was a lack of affordable rented accommodation and that has continued to be a problem ever since um Venetia Keynes says she's got a theory as to why PMs these days uh, aren't chosen for their leadership qualities to follow a theme of this podcast. Uh, she thinks it's down to one member, one vote. Um, uh, would you agree that it's since then that the change has come in, that since MPs stopped alone electing leaders, the leaders have declined in quality? I'm not sure I wholly agree with that. I think there is a strong case uh, that... Uh, MPs are best qualified to be the electorate for leading a party. But I've looked at this. In quite a few cases, since one member, one vote was introduced, um, the same leader would have been elected. Now, I know there's exceptions to that, that uh, uh, if it was MPs, David Miliband would have been elected, not Ed Miliband. Uh, but even so, in quite a few cases, I mean, Tony Blair was elected with one member, one vote, for example. Um so, yeah, obviously not Jeremy Corbyn uh, with Labour MPs. That, that would not have been the outcome. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure whether you could... Certainly now it's been established as a principle that party members should have a vote. Um, you, you can change it. Uh, see, even with Boris Johnson, he was ahead amongst Tory MPs. That was largely down to the fact that they decided he was going to win, though. And once you decide that, you join the winning team. Uh Oh, Matthew da Daly uh, writes about uh, Rishi as a theme of this podcast. At first glance, one would think Rishi, leveraging his ability as a communicator, wider reputation for generosity because of furlough, while giving catnip to the party because of furlough, uh, to the party membership through his Thatcherite credentials, will be a winning formula. Ah, right, okay. But, Matthew says... When Boris goes, it's likely to be in a storm. Uh, detail catching up with him and people, yeah, those consequences again, and people wanting a change. With an inquiry into COVID and autumn 2019, surely the Conservatives will look elsewhere. Who knows where, but it won't be Rishi. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, the inquiry, you know, eat out to help out, Rishi up for it all opening up last autumn. And you're right, if Johnson falls, it will be in a storm. Will they choose a person central to that storm? Good points. Uh, Matthew says, at the moment, just completed a marathon week or so, silaging. I thought it was going to be running a marathon, but of course, I remember with Matthew, it's got a farm. Uh, this week is a welcome break from it before starting again next week for another few long days in the tractor, listening to your pot. Oh well, thank good good luck in the tractor, Matthew. Hope it's productive. Uh, don't you know? 
do focus above all on the podcast. The farm comes second. Uh, but thank you very much for emailing. Uh, Al Neil from Reading. You stated that a change to the Westminster voting system would need a referendum. I don't see why. If the changes are stated in an election manifesto, that's enough authority to just go ahead and do it. As you pointed out, most people aren't interested in this sort of thing. Yeah, certainly a referendum uh, on the basis of the last one we had on that AV system. The turnout would not be high. It was in my area crazily high you had to queue to get in but i come from a completely unrepresentative part of the world um yeah i th i think these big constitutional changes would probably need a referendum to be honest but you're right there's no i i wouldn't hold another referendum ever uh, i think they're a disaster so maybe you're right if it's going to happen it should be in an election manifesto you've got me thinking about that one Al, thank you. Uh, Stephen Townsley, after listening to the podcast, it struck me there were prime ministers we shouldn't have had. Boris Johnson, he seems to have only one qualification, and that's he got elected. The only issue of his election was Brexit. Apart from that, he appears to be supremely unqualified, yet he doesn't meet many of the qualifications. That is un that is definitely the case you know even if you're a supporter doesn't meet the convent well what i list as those qualifications for leadership although winning is a pretty important one Stephen. he's done that uh john major uh surprise winner of the 92 election unable to govern because of europe he did he couldn't govern um although he did meet some of the qualifications of leadership uh winston churchill in 1951 the prime minister who was too sick to do anything other than survive yeah that's a theme Prime Ministers who shouldn't be Prime Minister, although Stephen is subjective, shouldn't, is a more subjective one that I think the criteria I apply in the book. And so I'm going to discuss that in uh, the next podcast. Uh, Lorraine Bambrick writes, I've been listening this evening whilst in the garden, enjoying the last rays of sunshine and some very excellent mojitos do you call it the the cocktail you all combine wonderfully mojitos yeah uh oh what a what an image i'm oh god i'm just kind of thinking the sun the cocktails the podcast it's a kind of living the dream no question and every element required anyway lorraine says um she listened to a podcast about uh you know, the head of policy, Monero Mirza uh, in number 10, and her husband, Dougie Smith, who are basically seen as those who are sort of uh, triggering this sort of woke agenda in number 10, or the uh, uh, anti-woke agenda. Uh, and Matthew Dancona, the columnist, did a good piece about this uh, sort of investigation. He, he sort of called them the power couple, really, who most people don't know about. Are they as influential in the recent stoking of culture wars as suggested? Were they in some way responsible for and did they misstep in the criticism of the England football team and the resulting fallout? I don't know whether they advised Johnson and others at first not to condemn the booing of the England team. Obviously a massive miscalculation because it became the in thing to identify with that team. Um, but yeah, I think they are powerful because it will be based on the, the amount of polling and focus grouping this number 10 does makes the new Labour era seem kind of innocently indifferent to these forms of, by the way, I think dodgy forms of measuring public opinion or unreliable. Um, 
but they will have had evidence that this kind of culture wars thing is the place to go. And my understanding is, and I've been following Matthew on it and others, um, is that they are driving it and they are having an impact on Johnson and his approaches. Um, uh, she, uh, Lorraine poses uh, this the cocktail must have got you really thinking because uh, this is a good question. As you're moving to commenting on Prime Minister's uh, past or non-Prime Minister's past, what other shadowy background figures have exerted undue influence for good or ill? Uh, yeah, I, I've, there's a, I've done this as a theme um, before, I think, but if not, I will do in the future. The key relationship in understanding Prime Ministers is who they pick to be their advisors, because to some extent, the cabinet is chosen for them, not wholly by any means, but obviously they're constrained by who's in the parliamentary party. It has to be mainly MPs, though not in the case of Frosty, of course, who was just given a peerage uh, with his union jack socks to wreak havoc. Um, but on the whole, you have to pick from MPs. You have certain people who have to get jobs and so on. So you're more constrained. But with your advisors, you as a prime minister choose. So it tells you a lot about a prime minister. Uh, and Johnson's number 10 is fascinating in that respect. Uh, uh, Munira Mirza used to be in the Revolutionary Communist Party. That's how she got to know Claire Fox, who campaigned for Brexit and the Brexit Party, uh, and is now in the House of Lords, and someone I know through reviewing papers on Sky with her for a long time. Uh, it's a very odd number 10, with sort of people with curious backgrounds. So it's a good question. What do others think? Shadowy figures who have exerted... Whether, by the way, you say undue influence for good or ill. It's not undue because it's up to the Prime Minister to decide how much influence these people have. And Johnson famously gave Dominic Cummings influence on a scale which has no precedent in the past. Um, uh, I don't think they're getting on that well these days, from what I've heard. Um, so, OK, there we go. Oh, Lorraine also says, I could listen to news and political podcasts all day. But you don't, I know, it's just this one. Um, so, And she's wondering about those with different political views. Uh, she listens to some who don't necessarily share her views. Uh, do we, us lot, on this podcast? Well, I hope this podcast has people of many different uh, views. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, the whole joy of politics is to engage with uh, a range of people with different views it's a frustration of politics as well because uh, you know there's no doubt in the British media some voices have greater say than others but I kind of find the engagement fascinating it's what it's it's what it's all about isn't it really you know when you think about it it's all about kind of ideas and debates it's, it's, as I said earlier if it becomes technocratic it's not political anymore uh, thank you Lorraine enjoy those cocktails listening to this podcast Lorraine no others just this one and if you find after another cocktail you want another podcast just listen to a previous one of these anyway thank you very much for emailing Chris Park writes uh, most economists now point to countries such as Denmark and agree that strong state services produce a more productive and dynamic economy. Promoting the role of the state and criticising austerity should be fertile ground for Labour. As you say, this was a theme of my uh, or our podcast last week. As you say, the Tory party is torn on this issue. 
and Labour can point out uh, the cost of austerity on elements of the welfare state that the middle classes value, policing, the courts, education, social care and the NHS. Yeah, there's a way of forming a broad coalition of support uh, for kind of Keynesian economics to, to kind of summarise it. Um, anyway, so I'll write in with a question on this, but as I say, I just wanted to respond to your thoughts. Fair enough. Uh, thank you. I'll await the question. But yeah, I agree there is a way of framing arguments. I should have put an essential quality of leadership implicit in the list I read out at the beginning of the podcast. Framing arguments. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for that. I think, blimey, yeah, we've done over 50 minutes. You will all be exhausted making bread, cycling in the gym, running um, many miles in the time we've had together. So I think I'll stop now if that's okay. Sorry if I haven't read out your email. Uh, do keep them coming in. Uh, do you know the email address? I'm reading it out in a kind of 52 minutes in or something if you're out running uh, and want to get the email address if you haven't got it uh, but you should have it's um what is it i can't find the email hold on a second um here it is what's my email address for this podcast it's steve rick 14 steve rick 14 at icloud.com and steve rick is s-t-e-v-e-r-i-c 14 at icloud.com um so there we go back for more reflections with another theme uh, about prime ministers we never had in advance of the book coming out so you could pre-order it um, and that would be great and yeah well enjoy your week and do subscribe because over August they might not be coming out at exactly the same time keep looking but the best thing to do is subscribe if you could leave a review that would be great because that means more people get access to our times together uh, and we'll join in the kind of bread making, recipe making, bike riding, politics wonder world uh, that we are all part of. Anyway, thank you very much. Have a great week. See you soon. Bye. Bye.